Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website, uh, aiming to help you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. So the title of this week's episode is The Emperor's New Ears, and uh, you'll find out what that means in a minute. My guest this week, who actually suggested the topic to me, is the most excellent Ronan Chris Murphy, who is an LA producer, engineer, and you're a mastering engineer as well, right? I am. I've been doing that for about 10 years now. Excellent. And I was very lucky to meet Ronan earlier on this year when he invited me over to LA to an event he organized, Audio Bloggers Live. Uh, him, me, uh, Joe Gilder, Graham Cochran, uh, and a bunch of amazing audio names. Give, give us the guest list, Ronan. Oh, we had Bob Clearmountain, Mick Gazowski, Dylan Dresdo, John Rod, Brian Lucy. Matt or Applebaum. Mayor Applebaum, yep. Yeah, it was it was a fantastic event and and such good fun. So, but I've talked about that before actually on the podcast, so I won't get down that uh, tangent. So, just quickly for people who maybe haven't come across you before, can you give us the kind of two three minute version of your your history, how you became an engineer, and what what your path was? Yeah, well, it's a long windy path, but uh, basically, I'm a record producer, engineer. I started playing in bands uh, in the sort of uh, early DC punk scene. And then probably by the late 80s, early 90s, kind of ended up on the other side of the glass and have been really focused on making records from from that perspective for however long that is. since <laughs> the early 90s. <laughs> what was your instrument? What did you play? I was, uh, well, I started, you know, singing and I kind of do that in air quotes, as I'm sure my mother wouldn't have agreed that that was actually singing, um, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, vocals and guitar. And things like that. So we were playing in the scene that, you know, punk and what became known as grunge and alternative, you know, playing with like bands like the Flaming Lips and Henry Rollins and All and uh, Descendants, whole bunch of bands like that. Cool. And uh, yeah, so that, that was a really exciting sort of scene to get into. But, you know, I, I stumbled in in some downtime into the recording end of things and just kind of fell in love with it and realized maybe I think I was better at making records for other people than being trying to be a rock star myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it's been an amazing thing. You know, it's brought me, I've lived in Boston, I lived in Canada, Seattle, England, uh, based in LA now. And yeah, I've really been doing almost nothing else but um, really making, working on music and working on uh, audio all that time. And uh, yeah, in terms of being a mastering engineer, I, you know, it's something about 10 years ago I started getting more and more into because mostly I, it took me about 15 years really as a full-time professional engineer until I, I kind of felt I'd earned it in a way, you know, until I developed my ears to a level where I thought I could, you know, master and I'd, I'd accrued enough really good equipment that was right on par with that. And then, um, you know, back in a bunch of years ago now, I kind of, you know, started what was really like the first recording show with Ronan's recording show. Uh, and I, I ha also have a, a business called Recording Bootcamp where we do, uh, you know, intense six-day workshops in Los Angeles and uh, in Europe. And that was my company that presented uh, Audio Bloggers Live. And we're also doing a thing called the Recording Retreat out in West Virginia, which is a big gathering in the mountains of, you know, fellow audio nerds to sort of learn and kind of share experiences and just geek out in the mountains over uh, recording stuff. Yeah, I should, I should give you full credit because... Um you were doing the kind of stuff that I'm doing now way before I was. And, you know, it was you doing the recording, Ronan's recording show 
um, on YouTube that made me think I should really get into doing YouTube videos, which has been a huge success for, for you know, for, for my website and the stuff that I'm doing. So, um, yeah, it's been really exciting to see a lot of, you know, a lot of people sort of picked up and ran with that. So that, again, uh, you know, you picked up on it and Graham Cochran's kind of said the same thing, you know, Pensado's place came out a year or two after that. So yeah, it's kind of cool. It's just this sort of wacky idea that I had. And I think I was probably the first audio blogger, even though I wouldn't swear to God on that, but it, it looks that way. And it's, yeah. it's really been cool to see like all the big range of just different opinions and personalities sort of come pick up the torch and just bring a whole lot of cool, different perspectives out into the world. Yeah, absolutely. And the, I mean, the, the classes you do or the courses you do in Europe, I mean, I would like to do, I mean, because you, you hire, looks like an Italian villa, yeah? and Yeah, yeah. The, I do them in a few different places. We do them in Greece and mostly North Italy. But yeah, the one we've got coming up in September, it's um, a studio built into a 500-year-old North Italian villa. And it's it's really nice because, you know, we have, you know, lunches with the family that uh, has been living there for hundreds of years and just amazing food and wine. And yeah, the, the, the educational stuff is still there, but... You know, I think the highlights of it, highlight is really the food and the wine. <laughs> I was going to say, Italy is, is kind of the perfect place to do that because I, I always found the Italians really kind of friendly and welcoming and the, it's a beautiful country and, and yeah, the food is amazing. On the other hand, I guess all that could be a big distraction to actually getting down to the, you know, hmm, shall I go out for another pizza or <laughs> should I stick my head inside this kick drum and try and figure out where the mic's going to go? Yeah, l lunch breaks in Italy are a little longer than when we do the courses in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool but i expect you go on later into the night as well to make up for it yeah yeah we go out to dinner and we'll drink and wine late into the night yes <laughs> very cool and you would something you didn't mention just now that you told me when we were talking just before we started recording that i wasn't aware of is that because you've suggested the topic maybe i should we should talk a little bit about the topic so the title of it is the emperor's new ears and of course that's a play on the emperor's new clothes which is the, the famous story of you know the guys who sold the vain emperor a set of invisible clothes that you you had to be very intelligent to be able to see yes um, and that kind of relates to this thing that happens in audio where it almost seems to me like you can claim to be able to hear anything Yes. And then disparage anybody else if they can't, you know, so you could kind of walk into a room and, and say, oh, what's that, what's that strange tone? And everybody else kind mm -hmm. of looks around confused. And there may or may not be a strange tone that you can hear, but it's, I, f I feel like there's almost a reluctance amongst people to, to kind of be straightforward and honest about what they can and they can't hear, which, you know, vexes me coming, coming from my kind of scientific background. If there's something that I can and can't or can't hear or think that I can hear, I want to know whether I can hear it or not because yeah, I'm absolutely. aware that I've been fooled in the past and I'm convinced that other people are being fooled by certain things. And it kind of relates to last week's topic with the, the high sample rates. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think it's a great topic and you were saying that you're actually kind of pretty well qualified to discuss it because you have some qualifications in, in a related field. Is that right? Yeah, actually. I mean, before I really started making my living, making records for people, um, my training is actually in psychology and a bachelor of science with a emphasis on quantitative analysis. So you know, this whole thing of, you know, what I, I refer to as expectation bias, um, other ways to phrase it as well, but it's amazing how just massive and real it is. And, and when you look at the, this expectation bias, again, the short of you, you will hear, or you will taste, or you will feel what you think you are going to feel is just an insanely real thing. So it's not, it's not something where somebody is an idiot if they, oh yeah, yeah. 
you know, think they heard something, but they didn't. It's just how we are wired as human beings. And virtually anybody who says they're immune to that is just either not the same species that you and I are. Um, or, or getting just themselves kinda, delusional. Yeah, exactly. Or delusional or things like that. So, so let, let's give some simple ideas. Um just so that people know exactly what we're talking about. You know, I mean, everybody's done it, right? It's the thing where you spend 10 minutes t just tweaking the EQ on a channel until you think it's absolutely perfect and then realize that the whole thing was bypassed, right? Or it's the other famous example I know of is the DFA switch. Um, do you have that in the in the US? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure the name, but I'm sure I know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's the DFA switch. Uh, it, it does we call F it the, all. Yeah, we, we call it the producer switch. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the magic button that you, uh, you know, when the client is just, I need something, it needs something, you go, okay, here, listen to this. And you flick a switch that does absolutely nothing. And they go, yes, that's it. Mm -hmm. Their expectation that something is going to happen because you flicked a switch um, or our expectation that something is happening when we tweak the EQ channel uh, settings on a channel that actually is bypassed, we think we're hearing stuff and we're not. That's basically the effect that we're talking about. Um, and I have a kind of a, a fairly long-winded example of, of a time when that caught me out pretty badly. Yeah. Um, how about you? I mean, anything spring I, to mind for I, you? I do. I mean, the, the thing for me, unfortunately, is I've proved this um, actually in front of audiences, you know, cause I, I do lectures and stuff around the world and, you know, being in front of something, you know, with an EQ flipping it in and out going, okay, this is going to be subtle. But what I want you to listen to is, you know, subtly how the stereo spread is getting a little bit wider and we're getting a little more definition in that voice, you know, click, 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 you know, of course, half the audience is nodding, they hear it. And then there's a couple of people kind of tilting their heads sideways. And of course I realize, uh, Oh, it wasn't even patched in. And I'm like, okay, on to our next discussion. <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, I do, this is what I do every day. And I, you know, I do this audio work at a, a pretty high level that people pay good money for. And again, even somebody who does this in and out is well-regarded will make this mistake. So it's really important to, you know, just like anything else, it's a physical thing that happens or a mental thing that happens to us. So it's not something, you know, it's always embarrassing, but not something you know, that somebody is a lesser human if they've uh, fallen victim to it. But tell me about yours. I'm I'm all excited about it now. Well, I hope you won't feel let down. It's, it's just this particular <laughs> example that kind of stands out in my mind. It's one of my favorite ever mastering jobs. Um, it, were, it was this, I was just really, you know, every so, we spend, I don't know about you, I spend quite a lot of time working on music that, yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of like, and I spend quite a lot of time working on music that I hate, and I spend a small amount of time working on music that I really like, you know, something where there's a, there's a, you've the finished CD, you might actually take it home, put it in your collection mm -hmm. and listen to it, you know? And this yep. was one of those, one of those projects. And I was just absolutely delighted with the the result that we got. It was kind of slightly electronica, kind of poppy, trip hoppy, breathy female vocals, really well produced, um, great songwriting. You know, I just loved it. Um, so the, the whole project was a, a huge pleasure. And then about a month after I had done the mastering session, I got a, a call from the, the customer saying, I'm really concerned because the pressed CDs just don't sound as good as the test disc, right? This is something that had kept coming up at that time. It was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And it, the, mm -hmm. the kind of the topic of CD differences, people saying yep. that stuff that was data identical mm -hmm. in somehow, some way sounded different. Yeah. And the, I mean, my immediate reaction was to say to the client, look, it, you know, that can't happen. You know, 
I immediately went off and did uh, a bit-for-bit comparison of what I had on the computer and the, the safety copy of the disk that I had on file and the uh, the pressed copy that he sent me. Um, and the numbers were the same. And if the numbers mm-hmm. are the same and you're playing it back on the same machine, there is no good reason why it should sound different. Mm-hmm. But being the scientist that I am, and because he was so, you know, the more I said to him, I, th- I really think, th- th- you know, you're you're imagining things effectively. I, I found a more tactful way of putting it, but you know, the more upset he got understandably because he was convinced he'd heard this effect. And so the next thing I did was I stuck the disc on to listen because I thought, well, you know, I can't completely rule it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as an example, one of the theories at the time was that if you, to take an extreme example, let's say you took a CD and you taped a coin to, to one side of it. So that when you put it in the machine and it spins up, there's actually a significant vibration in, of the disc in the machine. Yeah, it's wobbling mm-hmm. up and down. Yeah. If that happens, it's going to make it much harder for the laser to track the spiral of pits and grooves on the disc. Mm-hmm. That's going to uh, either cause errors, which could affect the integrity of the audio stream, or it's going to cause the motor to work much harder trying to stabilize the disc Yeah. Um, and possibly cause speed variations. And if there's any kind of... Uh, imperfect circuit design in the player, you can imagine a situation where the motor noise might influence the sound of the signal. In fact, my first ever CD player had exactly that effect. If you <laughs> listened on the built-in headphone jack um, <laughs> rather than through the phono outputs, uh, when the disc was spinning up, you could hear motor noise on, mm-hmm. on the headphones. You know, you could yeah. actually hear this kind of whine and then this kind of thing as it kind of settled into its... Um, yep. So anyway, so, so I could imagine that this guy wasn't delusional and and i felt so you know i went in full of skepticism put the discs in played them and i thought oh my god he's right i it's as clear as day i can hear exactly what he's talking about the, the test mm-hmm. copy sounds more open it sounds more sweet and warm I, you know i was baffled i'd done the comparison i w- so then i ran error check analyses on the disc to see whether maybe the, the error rate on the press disc was really high or something else i couldn't find any good reason and then, you know, I've been fooled before, so the alarm bells started ringing. And long story short, I spent six hours working with a colleague of mine. We had two identical CD players rigged up into parallel channels on an analog desk. We level matched them to less than half a dB of accuracy mm-hmm. using test tones. And yep. then I was sitting facing one end of the room. He swapped uh, the inputs behind me would randomly play me one or the other with no kind of, you know, he wouldn't even speak to me because we didn't want to have, you know, when you're testing these things, you have to be so careful. And we might dig into that later on yep. in the episode. Yeah. Um, so he wouldn't even say anything to me. It would just be like, okay, this is A, this is B. And I would say which one, I would, I would pick the one that I thought sounded better. And I went through this and I did 40 trials. It took two or three hours. And I mean, poor Simon must have been going out of his mind <laughs> with boredom. Um, but yeah. uh, so, so I, I kind of tallied it up and said, okay, how did I do? And he was like, okay, you're 70, 30. In fa-, and I was like, what? I, you know, that, that means a significant amount of the time over the number of trials that I did, I had noticed a difference. I was able to hear. So suddenly I had a real example of CD differences in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, went away and had some lunch. And I was kind of thinking, have I missed it? And then suddenly it occurred to me that the whole time we'd been doing it, he'd had one disc in one CD player and one disc in the other CD player. Mm-hmm. So just to be sure, I got him to swap them over and we did another 40 trials, another yep. two or three hours of testing in the afternoon. And we got to the end and I said, how did I do? And he, he said, same, 70, 30. 
roughly. Uh, and I was like, mm-hmm. well, that's it then. It's, this, is, this is real. We have to figure out what's wrong with these pressed discs. And he said, no, it switched. You identified them the other way around. <laughs> which, mean, which means that I was 70, 30% able to identify which CD player I was listening to, uh-huh. not which CD I was listening to, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And suddenly, okay, there it is. Whatever I was hearing, it was not a difference between the data on the CDs. I mean, I'm assuming it was a fractional level difference between the two signal yeah. paths. Or, you know, I mean, it was it was a really nice studio desk that we ran it through, but even there could have been yeah. manufacturing tolerances but, but, in the but CD good, players. But, and good ears, a quarter of a difference, quarter dB of difference we can hear. So. E- exactly, yeah. You can hear frighteningly small differences in level, or, or you can perceive some kind of difference. Um, so yep. th- that was, you know, that was my journey down the down the rabbit hole in the sense that I was utterly convinced going in, and that was my expectation bias, right? If I hadn't remembered to do that swap of the CDs, if I hadn't realised that I needed to do that to be completely scientific, that mm. because otherwise the test wasn't truly random. Um, and yep. again, we can come back to that in a little while. Yeah, I would have believed in CD differences, and and who knows where I'd have gone from there. Um, so. And and that to me just kind of stands out in my mind as it, what you said before. You know, I don't think anybody should feel remotely embarrassed by being fooled by any of this stuff at any point. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a, a good friend who whose opinion I respect recently told me that he went to a, a trial of. Have you heard of the? Um, oh, I can't remember the brand name. There's somebody selling really high specification power cables. Yes, yes, I, I think I know the gentleman you're, you're talking to. Um, and the, the, <laughs> about, yeah. the the idea is that you, w- one of them will give you better quality mains power for your gear mm-hmm. and improve the sound. And that doesn't sound crazy when you think about it, except that the test that was described to me was that they had two, uh, I think they were 192 Pro Tools converters, yep. right? One of them <laughs> powered by a normal mains cable and one of them powered by a different kind of mains cable. Now... And and the the guy I was talking to was convinced he was hearing a significant difference, even though the the levels had been very precisely matched, um, and all the rest of it. Now I don't know the ins and outs of that trial. I don't know whether he was blind testing or whether he was, because if if he wasn't blind testing, I guess that's one thing to say about all of these kind of trials. One of the things that can happen is you can just be influenced by an opinion. You know, in the in the the thing that I just described in my test, I was fooled by an actual difference, and my expectation bias was to put the reason for that difference in the wrong place. Um, mm-hmm. yep. That's one thing. But another thing is just if somebody's saying to you, okay, listen to this, and now listen to this, that yeah. can introduce <laughs> an expectation bias. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I, we can dive into it a little bit later, but it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, when I do work here, we do we do a lot of blind testing here with, you know, almost any piece of equipment that we're truly trying to evaluate, whether it's for me reviewing for uh, a video or something I might spend a few thousand dollars on, we do actually double blind testing, which is actually super important. It's, I mean, what you, it was what you were beginning to describe, but, you know, we as humans are just amazing at picking up emotion from other human beings. And uh, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if I say, oh, here's some Behringer mic and now, you know, right up against this, you know, $10,000 Neumann and, you know, go back and forth, even matched, you know, the the listener doesn't know what they're hearing. And they all of a sudden pick the Behringer one. Even if I'm trying to keep a straight face, my eyebrow might go up or, you know, twinkle in my eye a little bit. And they've found, you know, 
quantitatively that people will actually change their opinion. So if the person saying, listen to A, now listen to B, knows which is which, it will quantifiably shift results of A-B comparisons. Mm. Yeah, so effectively, the, the these kind of really subtle, uh, kind of unintentional clues being yeah. given by the person mm-hmm. offering up the test are polluting the, the, the data by influencing the person who's doing the test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can tell when a good friend is upset, even when they show up and say, no, everything's great. You know, we can tell there's you know, nonverbal clues that give us a sense that somebody's happy or upset or surprised and things like that. So when we're doing testing here, you know, hardware versus plug-in or plug-in versus plug-in or comparing two mics, we've actually developed a system where it's uh, almost always double-blind testing. So is it, can you describe that practically or is it kind of complicated? Well, well, there's a, there's a few different ways depending on microphones versus plug-ins. Um, but one of the things uh, will do actually is depending on the signal flow, we'll actually swap and twist cables. Like when we're comparing mic microphones to one another, mm-hmm. we'll actually swap the cables on the output of the mic pre and spin them around a whole bunch of times, identical cables and plug them back in. And that way, neither person in the room knows which one got plugged into a, which one got plugged into B. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of times too, when we're really doing critical stuff, um, uh, you know, we'll actually go in and relabel tracks and then shuffle them and then maybe even have the other person relabel tracks and shuffle them just to really be sure. Because especially at a level when, you know, we're doing these things, uh, you know, one, it's just good to know as a geek, but also, you know, guys like yourself and myself, you know, our opinions one way or the other on a piece of software, a piece of gear can actually have pretty big influences on on, on people. So if I'm saying, yes, I believe this is better or no, it's not better, uh, where that might actually make the difference in tens of thousands of dollars of sales to a small company or something, you know, I want to make sure that I'm really, really, really accurate and not just sort of, you know, talking my biases or the biases of a collaborator. Mm, absolutely. Well, and you don't want to waste people's time, you know, there's no point in spending, uh, you know, kind of half an hour trying to figure out whether to use in the box summing versus um, a hardware summing unit. When actually you've previously proved to yourself that you can't hear the difference between them, you know that's mm-hmm. just is a waste of time and effort. It's interesting you mentioned the, the twisted cable because that's reminded me of something that I developed. Um, you know, double blind testing is is kind of easier with more than one person involved in the trial, mm-hmm. right? Because yep. you, like you described, you can get it so that the person who knows isn't able to convey to the person who doesn't know in any way mm-hmm. what what the situation is. I came up with this thing that I call the three fingered mouse click. Mm-hmm. Um, this was when I was. Uh, testing whether or not i could hear the difference of dithered versus truncated audio yeah um and uh again resisting the temptation to get into a dither tangent uh, anybody who actually wants to know about dither it must be in such a fit of suspense by now it's been mentioned so many times <laughs> anyway there will be a dither episode at some point basically it just means you know you have a toggle switch you can mm-hmm. if you click your finger fast enough you can end up so that you don't really know which one is on or off but i discovered that actually i was getting too accurate on stuff and that somehow I was subconsciously, I was aware of how many times I'd clicked it. So I started uh-huh. using two fingers, kind of double tapping on the, and I figured even then I could still kind of mentally keep track. It's almost like when you spin a coin, I sometimes think you can kind of feel how many times it's flipped around, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started using three fingers, two fingers uh-huh. on one hand and one on the other, kind of randomly tapping at the mouse you know, so with my eyes closed so that yep. I don't know whether this thing is on or off. And then I start clicking on and off. 
it's quite a useful strategy. The problem with it is, well, one thing about it is it makes you very aware of expectation bias. Yes. Because the number of times I've done that, finished, sat there, clicked and clicked and clicked and go, okay, so that's A, because it sounds so much better than B, mm-hmm. and then realized that during the three-fingered mouse clicking, I just moved the mouse off the thing that I was toggling on and off. <laughs> yes. And the whole time I'd been testing it on and off, I wasn't doing anything. Uh, I was just clicking in a little bit of blank screen. God, <laughs> I wish I could laugh at you for that. <laughs> yeah, um, it's... And- and I do that when I do that again, that toggle, like closing your eyes, turning your head away, toggling back and forth. You know, if I'm just doing it alone, you know, I'll do kind of one, two, seven, three, nine, seven, you know, Spice Girls, Metallica, Slayer, you know, just trying to get my mind thinking on all sorts of different things and then back to it. But one thing too is if you actually print things to track, uh, especially in print things to track and then level match. You know, one thing too is also if you've got a buddy or got a spouse who maybe even doesn't know anything about, you know, working with audio doesn't take long to teach them how to relabel something and shuffle the order of a track. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go make a sandwich, you know, have your buddy come in and, you know, relabel things and shuffle them around and then come back. That's well, pretty the, darn blind. Yeah, that that works. And there's even an automated way, way of doing that. Um, if, mm-hmm. if people Google around a bit, you can find ABX uh, testing applications. Mm-hmm. So AB, for anybody who doesn't know, ABX is kind of uh, a step beyond the AB test. You know, AB testing is where you have two things, you don't know what they are, and you try and figure out whether you can hear a difference. ABX is where you have A and you have B, and you know that they are different, but then you have X, and you have to figure out, is it the same as A or is it the same as B? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in practical terms, you have a utility. Um, what's the one that I use on the Mac called? I think it's called ABXer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's free. It's a bit nuts and bolts, but it works. So, you, yep. you know, you choose, you tell it, okay, this is file A, this is file B, and it's okay if you know what those are. And then you say, run a test, and it will allow you to listen to A and then B and then X, mm-hmm. and you choose which, once once you've spent enough time and figured out what you think is what, you choose is X A, is X B, and then you move on and you do 10 trials, and then at the end of it, uh, that, it tells you how you scored. Mm-hmm. And th- I mean, the cool thing about it is it even tells you I think we won't bother to get into the statistics of it, but basically, out of 10 trials, you need to hear something nine times out of 10 to be absolutely, well, not even absolutely certain, but to be pretty mm-hmm. confident. If you do that, there's a very low probability that you did it by chance. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, six out of 10, seven out of 10 feels convincing to us, but over 10 trials, you have a pretty good chance of doing that by random. Yeah, just um, like your res- almost like your results with the CD players. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's the other, well, if I hadn't kind of done 40 trials yes, of each, yeah. then I wouldn't have believed my seven out of 10. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, int- just quickly referring back to last week's episode where we were talking about, you know, this, this new study of people being able to hear the difference of high sample frequencies versus normal sample rates. The, the power of that meta study was combining all of those different, um, tests so that they had a much bigger pool of data you know they so i had what 80 trials altogether in my little test that i did they had i think they t- narrowed down 12,000 trials to mm-hmm. i think it might only have been 400 or maybe it was mm-hmm. 4,000 anyway a much smaller set but you know even so it's a very large number of samples so you, you can really rely on the results of those tests mm-hmm. so yeah people could play with abx testing yeah. if they would like yeah. And one thing I kind of want to mention for people who might be listening to this is, again, getting into this sort of minutia and absolute testing is, it's something important for guys like you and I who are mastering for people. I mean, they 
you know, they, one of the things they pay us is for us to have done the research and have formed strong opinions. And we're also, you know, educators. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of this in terms of, you know, A, B, oh, is this plugin better than this plugin? You know, those are good things to know. And especially if you're going to drop a whole bunch of money on something or invest in a company. But if you pull up an EQ or compressor plugin or piece of hardware and go, I love the way that sounds. Great. <laughs> Let's move on to the next thing. Mm. Um, but it's kind of crazy when you start getting into these differences, which I'm happy there are people in the world uh, kind of going crazy and obsessing about these. But it's interesting when you get into these issues, uh, man, follow an internet thread about Meridian Dither Type 1 versus Meridian Dither Type 2 or something. And, you know, you get in these bloodbaths and... It, I always kind of say with people, you know, it's part of like a lecture I do. It's my part of my six day thing where we're talking about where the big differences happen in the recording chain. You know, you'll see guys on the internet going, oh my God, this, this converter is terrible. It's unusable. Or, oh my God, if you can't hear the difference between, you know, 44.1 and 48, you're an idiot, blah, blah, blah. Okay. All valid. But I'd, I'd say take any of those people and say, okay, I've got a deal for you. You can do it in your studio speakers, you know, perfectly. I'm going to give you five files that were processed using the two different methods. If you can get four out of five correct, I'll give you $5,000. If you get less than that, you give me your house. (laughs) Not a single person would take that bet. Not a single person. You know, again, talking about like high sample rates, which I don't want to dismiss in any way, shape or form. There are differences. But again, when people get into this and start looking at it, like from this crazy religious war perspective, <laughs> you know, you really have to understand it's like, okay, if, if X converter is absolutely unusable, the difference must be so massive to your preference here that we're going to do this test. I give you $5,000 or you give me your house. Nobody would take that bet. Yeah. So, and I think, and I think a lot of maybe people just learning this stuff on their own or, with, you know, less time in the trenches, they'll sort of read this stuff on the internet and go, can I make music with the Aurora converter? Cause the guy on the internet said that one's bad and this other one is good. And yeah. Yeah. Just understand that so much of that is sort of just stupid well, religious debate. And, I would say that moving the mic uh, a couple of inches is probably going to have a bigger effect. Hands down. I mean, uh, not even probably a hundred percent guaranteed that the difference of moving a microphone one inch on a speaker cabinet is a far bigger difference than the difference of any two converters on the market right now. Yeah. And, and I, I would take that bet. If somebody moved a, uh, a microphone on a guitar amp, you know, one inch out from the center of the cone out to the edge, I would take that $5,000 versus my house bet. Well, easy. I rent my house, so. But uh, <laughs> um, but that's the kind of thing. It's those differences are massive. The differences of changing out a guitar pick are massive. <laughs> you know, neck pickup to bridge pickup on a Les Paul are massive. And when we get into these differences about high sample rate or X converter or or even hardware versus you know plug-in kind of things, mm. you know, th- those are just. I don't want to dismiss any of those things because every step of the process is important and should be cared about. But a lot of people kind of get crazy and focus on yeah, the wrong you, end. You need to keep it in perspective, don't you? Flavors of Dither is another example. Um, or yeah, the hardware versus software. You know, there are subtle differences and sometimes some people will hear them on some material. But the fact is, whatever it is you have, you're going to use mm-hmm. and you're going to make it sound the way that you like. You know, I, I do not believe, I, mean, I haven't done these tests myself rigorously, but I mm. my instinct is that if I was comparing, you know, a universal audio 
emulation of an 1176 versus an actual 1176, I certainly don't think they would sound the same. Mm -hmm. But I think I could use either of them to get a sound I was equally happy with. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, and I've, I've done similar stuff in the past. Just picking up quickly on something you use, I mean, moving, you know, moving the mic is an interesting one. Something to mention to people is you have to be very careful about moving your head yes, when you're doing uh -huh. these kind of tests. I suspect that the reason my client from those, those where he thought the CDs sounded different, um, I mean, well, there's lots of interesting things here. One is that simple things are easier to compare than complicated things. And that, that music was very complicated, mm -hmm. texturally, tonally, harmonically, everything. So the, the fact is our attention span is pretty short. And if you just happen to focus on, you know, this bit of a vocal phrase versus that bit, you're going to hear differences that if you're convinced they're down to the difference of a CD versus another CD, you might misattribute. And the same thing is true, you know, if you move your head, that you know, <laughs> it completely changes the frequency response. If you have a testing mic and you run a frequency scan in a room, any room, and then you move it an inch to the left, you will get something that looks different and yep. probably sounds different as well. The phase relationships change, the, you know, all kinds of subtle things change. If you want to try playing with an ABX tester application, make sure you don't move your head too much because mm -hmm. that will skew your opinion <laughs> as well. Um, one thing I was going to mention, I mean, again, I think the theme, what I would really like people to take away from this is, I mean, on the one hand, be open to the idea that, you know, well, Russell had a great example last week when he was talking about um, a busted microphone that he had and his clients immediately picked up on this strange noise um, and he was explaining that it was the whole kind of thing of miscommunication. They were describing it as a buzz. And what he eventually mm -hmm. figured out was it was a tiny high pitched tone because uh -huh. this mic had been damaged and he'd been focusing his attention in a completely different part of the audio frequency, looking for a buzz yes. and just couldn't hear what they were. And then when he realized it was a tone, suddenly he was like, Oh, you mean that? And then, uh, he could hear it. Yep. <laughs> so it is important to be open if you or somebody else thinks they're hearing something just because everybody else can't hear the thing that you can hear doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's not there. Yep. On the other hand, just because somebody is emphatically telling you they can hear something that you can't hear doesn't mean that it's real and that you're in some way, you know, the emperor or the, who is it in the story? Who You know, <laughs> the, the guy who can't see the clothes because he's yes. stupid. You know, yeah, it's, exactly. I think people should have confidence. And one of the reasons for that is to do with this thing called the placebo effect, which is related to confirmation or expectation bias, but subtly different. And I think probably the the example I like to give is a medical trial. I mean, everybody kind of, I think, has an idea of the, the whole thing of placebo testing. When you're testing a new drug, you have to do a blind test, as we've been describing, because you know this is a, this could be a matter of life and death. So it's critical that the scientists get this stuff right. So they always have a placebo where people think they're being given this new treatment that's being tested and actually they're just being given something that does nothing. Sugar pills, um, yeah. Know, sh sugar <laughs> pills or, or whatever. But the, the findings of that are really counterintuitive. What they have discovered is that if you give uh, somebody two different types of uh, paracetamol, painkiller, the one that's in the fancy packaging and that costs more actually genuinely reduces pain more than the cheap, nasty packaged paracetamol, even though it's exactly the same pill, mm -hmm. right? It actually has a real world. So, you know, and this is, people are talking about pain relief, right? It's not, um, well, I guess you could argue- Which is a, a subjective assessment, yeah. It's a subjective yeah. assessment, but the fact is it works. And my translation of that is that if you spend $1,000 a meter on speaker cable, 
because you think it's going to make it sound better and you compare it to i mean the famous trial is where they compared i think it was monster cable with a with a coat hanger yes <laughs> um and it was shown that nobody could hear the difference when they couldn't tell which they were listening to right when mm-hmm. it was blind and that's why blind testing is so important when they did know the difference between what they were listening to not only did they hear that the more expensive cable sounded better, but that's a real effect. You know, I mean, it genuinely sounds better mm-hmm. to the person listening because of the placebo effect, because of this confirmation bias effect. So again, it's it's a kind of real psychological effect that, uh, you know, just means people shouldn't feel bad if if they get affected by it. And I think it's why people get so upset in the, you know, in the online debates about this stuff, because... If you say, I hear this thing, this sounds better, and then somebody says, but there's no reason why that should be the case. You know, there's no benefit to super expensive speaker cable versus mains cable. It feels like they're saying to you, you didn't hear what you just did. You were fooling yourself. And that's not the case. You really did hear that it sounded better. It's just that the reason wasn't because in objective physics terms, the cable was better. It was for the same reason that expensive painkillers work better than cheap painkillers, even when it's the same active ingredient. It's because you're human and you believe that it's going to sound better and it really does sound better to you. Well, it's also one of the things when I'm kind of doing lectures about like finding the right vocal mic and things like that. You know, if you've been working with some horrible Behringer mic for the last few years and you finally saved up enough money to buy that thing with a Neumann logo on it and... Uh, you're all excited, you know, saved up for two years, you're absolutely 100% sure it's going to sound better and it will sound better to you. Uh, But, you know, there is the odd chance that just with the character of those different mics that maybe the cheap mic actually sounds better on your voice. So uh, it's one of those things where I always try and tell people like set up these blind tests because you don't want to go and blow $2,000 when the piece of gear you already own might actually be the better tool. And, you know, you can save yourself a lot of money that you can use for uh, for other more exciting things. And we should probably say, because I grew up with the BBC, where they compulsively say other brands are available. You know, we've mentioned mm-hmm. kind of Behringer slightly disparagingly a couple of times uh, <laughs> this evening. But uh, the truth is, I, I, people I respect have told me there are various bits of Behringer gear that actually they're pretty damn good. I use their cable tester. There you go. I mean, it's, you know, it's... <laughs> And yeah, there's there's almost certainly other stuff. And it's a kind of a classic example. Um, I mean, the same thing is true of me in my little home mastering studio. No, mm-hmm. I, I still have my, my B&W, the hi-fi speakers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're not cheap, but they're not super expensive. I would like to upgrade them at some point. I'm going to have to get a serious bang for my buck yep. to spend, you know, kind of £5,000 as opposed to £500 in order to, uh, to get the get my money's worth basically yep. so so i'm going to be doing some serious testing when the, when the time comes for that yeah well, one one thing i actually back to you know i don't know that we're talking about the same guy but there's a, a company that makes the very you know high-end boutique electrical cables and uh, again they one of those companies had approached me and especially early on when rona's recording show was like the game in town um a lot of people were trying to you know get me to review stuff. And I said, man, this is a great idea. I would love to do it. Uh, And I kind of explained that I was going to set up a bunch of level match, double blind tests, you know, where we could really do, you know, objective comparisons. And it was amazing. The more and more I kept describing it, you know, you could almost just see the guy like sneaking back, like, (laughs) yeah, this isn't really something that we need in our life right now. (laughs) 
It's yeah, and and that's well, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, uh, so I'm fascinated by uh, lots of people know about Mixer Man, and he's mm-hmm. written uh, you know a bunch of great books about um, engineering and producing and recording. Um, and one of his kind of bugbears is the whole thing of analog summing versus digital summing. Mm-hmm. I've not done the test myself, but if if I was going to test analog versus digital summing, I would want to level match for a start. You know, I mean, if it's an analog unit, there are going to be tiny little gain differences between a channel. So if I've got a digital mixer versus an yep. analog one, I would want to individually level test all of those channels and then make sure that I loudness matched the output of the digital system with the analog one before I did my comparisons. Mm-hmm. And then I would use an ABX trial. And I know people who've done this test and they say on the systems that they've tested where the summing unit, the kind of idea of it is to be very clean, there's, you know, you can't hear a difference. There are other analog summing systems where the idea is definitely not to be clean and there you probably can yeah. hear a difference. Yeah. Um, he has. He just says that entire testing paradigm is is, he won't have it. Because his uh, feeling is it's about the way this stuff makes you work. What he says is try mixing something, start off digital, and then plug in the summing unit um, at the point where you get stuck. You know, at the point where you're kind of going around in circles and feeling like the mix isn't going anywhere, that's where you patch in the analogs. And he says from then on, everything will go easier. It'll all just fall into place. It'll just happen that much quicker. It may not even sound any better, but he says he gets there faster using the analog summing than the digital summing. And... That's kind of fascinating because the way that he's telling you to do the test makes it impossible to be objective, right? Uh-huh. Because yes. at the point where you swap it out and start doing more work, suddenly you can't do a fair comparison between before and after. And even because, you know, my feeling is I would love to test him. Uh, I, the scientific bit of me would like to say, OK, we're going to do what you're saying. And at the point where you say, OK, now's the time to patch it in, we may or may not put in an analog summing unit. And then you've got to tell us whether or not we've done it by how easy it is for you to complete the mix and see. And who knows? He might be completely accurate. He might be right. Um, but until you do that test, his test is a non-test. Yeah, And this will... is something that I see. You know, I'm, I'm not saying he's wrong, and I'm not saying that he's his opinion, that's based on a lot of experience, and he feels very passionately about it, and he might be right. Yeah. But and, and I'm not suggesting he's deliberately designed a test that kind of can't prove or disprove what he's suggesting. That's just his feeling about the way that it should be done. But it just kind of uh, highlights how difficult it is to set up a fair test and well, how... I, I think it's really important, though, to that people really start to differentiate, you know, obvious biases about subjective experience and qualitative back and forth, where, again, if he says, you know, he finds it easier to mix, well, then that's, that's true. I mean, assuming we don't know each other well or anything... But that's sort of true. The same sort of mm. thing is I've got this Thelonious Monk t-shirt I love. And if I said, you know, days I come in wearing my Thelonious Monk t-shirt, I just master better. I mean, that is a, you know, subjectively true experience to me. Mm. Um, if I said that when I wear my Thelonious Monk t-shirt, you know, my, uh, you know, my crane song converters are more linear. Okay, yeah. then we need to. <laughs> Okay. That's a very different thing. And that's, I think where a lot of people kind of get screwed up. I mean, and to me personally, like I, you know, I year and a half now, I got rid of the analog console, but I can mix faster on an analog console. I enjoy the experience of mixing on an analog console. I did my first mix in the box in 1993. So it's not like some scary thing that I don't know how to do well. Mm. 
But all those things of like, oh, I enjoy that. I'm less tired. I feel I can be more creative. All those things are like objective and awesome and great. Um, You know, and I meet people like, you know, who have preferences like, oh, that, that mic, I love it. It's just the, it's the best mic. I don't care if it was X dollars. And I think, oh my God, I used that mic and thought the manufacturer should be brought up on war crimes for putting into the market. <laughs> but it doesn't make their experience not true uh, or not accurate or not honest. If they love that microphone, there's microphones that cost $100 that I love more than a lot of microphones that cost four or $5,000. Mm. And so that's that's the big thing that I think is really important. And, you know, guys like you and I have sort of been in the online world and of audio for, for quite a while, you sort of see it. People start getting wrapped up in, and they really blur the lines of, this was my subjective experience of being involved with this and mixing that up to here's an empirical thing where other experiences are not valid or not true. Yeah, that that's something that really bugs me is somebody expresses an opinion as fact. You know, uh-huh. they kind of, it's, it's, it's like the kind of whole, um, you know, oh, Vinyl just wipes the floor with digital. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's no question vinyl and digital are different. Mm-hmm. But what they're expressing is a preference. Yes. Um, and they say it as though it's a fact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people say things as fact, yeah, it, no, I completely agree. In f- and that leads me on to the, the final point I was going to make, which, which leads into the Maxim this week, uh, the mastering Maxim. I hope you're not talking about the Avid plugin. <laughs> <laughs> no which is objectively a bad limiter <laughs> oh i haven't used it so i couldn't possibly comment i'll take your word for it um sarcasm but the sort of. i can't there's a name for this effect and i can't remember what it was i had a quick google i couldn't find it maybe somebody will know and, and tell us in the comments this week um when somebody expresses an opinion one way or another like analog summing versus digital summing or expensive mic versus cheap mic or converter x versus converter y there is a human tendency once you've come out in public and said something to stick by that opinion and and the more you get argued with the tighter you grab it and won't let go even in the face of all evidence and you know i mean so so the jury is still out on the what causes the difference between high and normal sample rates um, but the people who believe that it's because there are extra high frequencies there and that those are somehow important, you know, really that's a very tenuous theoretical point of view to have um, because all the evidence is we can't hear super high frequencies. So you find people coming up with more and more outlandish. Well, I mean, some of them are not outlandish. You know, one of the theories is maybe we're sensing conduction of sound through the bones of the skull mm-hmm. rather yeah. than through the inner ear. You know, that's something that needs to be tested and, and, and investigated. It comes up with the analog versus digital. People start saying, oh, there's something in the science that we just don't understand yet. You know, just because we don't have a good scientific explanation for why analog is better than digital doesn't mean it's not true. And that's because we somehow don't understand the science. And as I said in the episode earlier on about analog versus digital, actually, what they're missing is at the, at the end of the day, we're talking about the movement of electrons in a wire. Mm-hmm. You know, not our perception of sound in a room is one thing. There's a whole load of stuff we don't understand there. But in terms of the movement of electrons in a wire, that's something we understand really, really well. You know, the, the, the physics of that is basically nailed. And so there's not really any room for anybody to kind of come up with some other explanation. But even so, people who've come out and said, I think analog is categorically better than digital, you know, will argue it, even though 
really they have no scientific leg to stand on. That leads me into the maxim, because the the maxim this week is do be open minded. You know, try not to let that happen to you. Just because you said last week that this plugin was better than that plugin, allow yourself to have your opinion changed. You know, be scientific about it. There's a I can't remember who said it. Somebody said that science is the art of highly nuanced doubt. <laughs> Meaning, you know, science basically says we don't know anything. Anything is possible. All we know is we can say this, we can say this, we can say this, and we can say this, and we can draw a conclusion from it. And there's always the possibility that something else will come in. You know, I mean, a year or two ago, somebody thought that neutrinos could travel faster than the speed of light mm-hmm. um, that came out of the CERN. If that had true was had turned out to be true, it would have turned the fabric of science on its head. It turned out it was because of a dodgy connection in a cable somewhere, <laughs> um, and they were able to track it down. But but in the in the in the space between the results being published and them finding out what caused the problem. All of those scientists were being very open-minded about the possibilities. And we need to do the same in our own little way with audio. You know, uh, don't start calling somebody an idiot because they happen to disagree with you about controversial issue X, Y, and Z. On the other hand, I think, like you said earlier, people need to be realistic. You know, they need to be sensible. It's Well, I think for- it's just sort of, it's such a boring waste to get entrenched. I mean, there's certain people where the experience of making music sort of ties to like virtually religious traditions about, oh, this is how it's done. I only use tape and I, and it's like, okay, that's, that's fine. They're kind of enjoying being part of that, uh, that ritual. And, uh, and I think there's certain validity to that. But when we start thinking about, oh, the sounds we can use or X converter versus Y converter or hardware versus plugin, um, it just seems such a boring waste to get entrenched because, you know, there's so many new possibilities and, you know, of course I have sort of fun, you know, bashing on a few things. And and there are a few things too, where, you know, I, I've been a long loud mouth about digital amp modelers uh, for guitars. Mm-hmm. And my reason for that is not religious. It's just that, you know, after a decade of mixing records, when they come in with these digital amp modelers, my job is much harder. I find it much more difficult to get them to blend and sit where, you know, I traditionally want them to go. But And that's not because, you know, a little glowy thing is religious to me. It's sort of, if something shows up and it's like, wow, this is a great guitar sound. Well, if it's done with an amp model, I think, well, this is awesome. Great. They're getting better at it. And, um, you know, and there are times where, you know, I've, you know, even checked something like pull up a mix and go, wow, this sound is amazing. You know, what a killer synth sound. They're like, oh yeah, that's uh, that's my iPhone. And it's like, you know, and last week I had you know, my entire studio was filled with amazing analog synths and getting some killer sounds. But yeah, if somebody goes, oh, here's a killer thing from an iPhone. It's like, man, this is awesome. The The palette just expanded, the ways I can create and make art just expanded, you know, maybe save money, all those kind of good things. So yeah, that's the thing when I, I have very little interest in people who sort of get entrenched about these audio issues. Uh one way or the other and uh, yeah I, I completely agree and, and and i have a couple of those examples myself i have tested myself in the past and convinced myself that i can hear the difference between 24-bit truncated down to 16-bit audio and dithered mm-hmm. audio yep. not just kind of listening to reverb tiles and all the rest of it but when the music is playing and all the rest of it and there are an awful lot of people who tell me that i'm insane for thinking that mm-hmm. now since recent conversations with people telling them that i've been insane i've been trying to find a really good example 
so th- that I can hear it really clearly on to offer to them so that they can test themselves. Because mm-hmm. I think, you know, like everything else, you hear these things more on some material than on others and on some systems and others and all the rest of it. But I have to try and be open to the fact that I might be wrong. You know, I might have I might have got lucky with my trials back then. I'm, I know for a fact I didn't get nine out of ten trials right. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah. it almost certainly wasn't statistically significant back then. Yeah. Um, same thing applies to loudness. You know, I mean, I'm yeah. I'm going on about loudness the whole time, and and I, I mean, this one I'm I'm not gonna, I'm pretty much not open to the idea that I'm wrong about the fact that going beyond a certain loudness is always detrimental. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely examples of records that are louder than I would suggest that they would be that still sound fantastic. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. So I have to be honest about the fact that you know it's not like loudness always kills stuff dead you know or that distortion is always bad or that clipping is always bad or any of these mm-hmm. things and so yeah that's those are kind of a couple of examples from yeah. where i'm I've, I've got my entrenched opinion but yeah. it's you know we need to to keep that kind of that nuanced doubt yeah the one thing i will throw out is sort of the um contrarian old man comment too is especially for maybe the people with lesser experience getting into this one thing though about all of this too is don't completely discount the opinion of people who've done this a lot more than you have. Um, Cause a lot of that too is like, Oh, this mic versus this mic is something, Oh my God, I use this, you know, say inexpensive uh, condenser mic and Oh, it blew away the whatever. The other one that the pros say is the awesome one. Well, part of that might be, okay, you subjectively enjoyed that, but maybe the pros having maybe mixed a few hundred more records than you know that, Oh, these characteristics in tracking that you were drawn to, are actually going to create problems in mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once we apply the processing that's very typical of a modern style production or, man, it's stupid. I didn't hear a difference. And one of those is $2,000 more. Um, never rule out that maybe your ears aren't developed yet, which is really common. Just think of any field that you don't have expertise in, you know, whether it's you know oil painting or cooking or <laughs> photography or something where, you know, the fact that you haven't developed your skills uh, in that in that arena, you may not notice differences where, say, a professional photographer would be like, oh, my God, we completely lost the whites in this. And therefore, that's going to create technical problems of how that prints and things like that. So mm. that's the thing. Again, trust your ears. Trust the people who have been there. But anybody who gets on this on a religious perspective say, great, $5,000 versus your house. Let's do it. And that'll <laughs> shut up almost everybody. I completely agree. And while you were talking there, I invented a new catchphrase, um, which may be rubbish, but I'll put it out there anyway. So so to sum up the maxim, be skeptical, but be respectful. Yeah. You know, if somebody is kind of you looking at them going, you're just, this is just, yeah, like you say, on a soapbox, by all means be skeptical of that, mm-hmm. but also have some respect for other people's experience and for the possibility that you might be missing something. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was, like we talked about the example of MP3 encoding in the in the last episode, where I just didn't hear the problem that uh, Nick, my colleague, did until he said, no, 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 it's this. And suddenly there it was and I could hear it, And he was like, you're absolutely right. And I... Yep. You know, until I'd heard that, I would have fought him tooth and nail over it. So, um, yeah, and I love yeah. getting proved wrong. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. There's no, yeah. it's it's much more exciting to 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 realize that you don't know something than to yep. than to to think that you do. Yep, <laughs> it's definitely. Ronan, this has been really good. I hope. Uh, well, last week's episode was deeply nerdy. Um, uh, people seem to worse. have liked it. Nobody has complained. This one also. So I'm hoping people have enjoyed this as well. 
it's a fascinating and really important topic and one that nobody should spend too much time on because there are so many more important things to do in audio recording, mixing and mastering. So um, thank you for suggesting it. Um, you want to tell people where they can find you online? I mean, they should definitely go and check out the recording show. Uh, yeah, and even though a lot of the Ronan's recording show, I've been sort of just morphing that a lot of that slowly into recording bootcamp. So if you go to recordingbootcamp.com, uh, pretty easy access to my whole world. I've got a, several different sites, but that's the one that'll sort of get you to uh, to all of my world in terms of a lot of the free content I put out into the world and things like that. Excellent. And you're on Facebook and Twitter as well, right? Oh, yes. Probably too much. <laughs> yeah. The, well, that doesn't happen to me. I don't spend too much time on those platforms at all. No. Um, oh. But for anybody who does, you can find me at Ian Shepard on Twitter and I'm on Facebook as well. Yes, I'm um, Ronan C. Murphy on Twitter. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Ronan Chris Murphy on uh, Facebook. And he's in my friends list, so you guys can, can find him. And um, if anybody wants to learn more about drum recording... Uh, I've actually what I made what I think is probably the most comprehensive drum course out there. It's like 12 hours of content. And um, actually, if you're a fan of Ian's, if you enter the coupon code Ian at checkout, uh, you can get a 20% discount on that. Fantastic. That's a, that's a great offer. Yeah, people should definitely check that out. Um, we'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. So please head over to themasteringshow.com to find the show notes for this episode and for all the other episodes. Sign up for the hot list to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and any offers or other cool things we might be talking about there. Uh, my website is productionadvice.co.uk. This week's show was mixed and edited by John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Anybody interested in finding out more about Reaper should check that out. And the music was by Kaylee Law. Ronan, thank you so much. Everybody Excellent. else. Excellent. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. <laughs>